0: It's been estimated that about two billion people are going to celebrate Christmas this year around the planet. Two billion people, that's a lot. And I would venture that probably most of those people would not be able to give you any kind of a coherent Christian or theological explanation as to what it is that they're celebrating. Because many people just celebrate with gifts and hollies and wreaths and mistletoe and punch and traditional meals and things of that nature, and they gather around the tree and they open up their gifts. But for most people, it's not probably primarily a theological enterprise or a theological uh, celebration. And I don't know how many of you grew up, but that is exactly how I grew up. There was nothing spiritual about how I celebrated Christmas when I was a child, nothing at all. In fact, the closest closest thing to anything spiritual about my celebration of Christmas was watching the Charlie Brown Christmas special and seeing Charlie Brown say, can anybody tell me what Christmas is all about? And then watching Linus read from Luke chapter 2 about the birth of Christ. That was the most spiritual aspect of my Christmas celebration as a kid. It was completely divorced from anything religious, anything Christian, anything theological at all growing up. I remember watching the Linus, the Christmas special, and hearing Linus read that as a child. I remember thinking to myself, there is something about that that is totally unlike everything that I celebrate. Oh well, and then I would open up presents and just would go on with the holiday. And I would think to myself, at some point I should probably figure out What Linus is talking about and what they say that Christmas is about because it is unlike everything that I celebrate at Christmas time. And so today what I want to do is kind of go behind the scenes of Christmas as it were to talk about some of the grand and great theological truths that we celebrate at Christmas time. And for that we're going to turn to a passage that I mentioned this morning in our message at the very end in chapter 2 of the book of Philippians. So if you have your Bibles with you tonight please turn to the book of Philippians to chapter 2. There's a lot of things that we could discuss, a lot of features of Christmas that we could focus, focus in on, the decree of Caesar Augustus, or the visit, of the visit of the Magi, or Joseph and Mary's flight to Egypt, or the slaughter of the innocents, or the shepherds, the virgin birth. And, well, tonight we're going to look behind the scenes of Christmas at the theology as far as heaven is concerned. We're going to get a heavenly view of, of what happened at Christmas. From Philippians chapter 2, we're going to read together beginning at verse 3 and we'll read through verse 11. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I want to give you a little bit of a background for the passage first, because the, the passage is not typically what we would describe as a Christmas passage, in other words, it, Paul is not giving his, his theology of Christmas. He's not talking about wise men and visiting of the Magi or shepherds and angels appearing and uh, Joseph and Mary. That's not really what he is describing. What he's describing is the, the ultimate, the greatest display of humility that the world has ever seen or that he could offer. And what Paul is driving at in the passage is that we would, in the words of verse 3, three do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than ourselves. He is imploring to the Philippians and to us, that we would have a certain mindset, a certain way of thinking, an attitude of our heart and an attitude of the mind that is aggressively others-centered, that we would think of others, that we would consider their interests ahead of our own, that we would do nothing out of selfishness or vain conceit, that we would do nothing out of our own self-interest, but that we would consider ourselves as below others, as less than others, that we would humble ourselves to the point of considering the interests and the... Uh, the, the the interest of others ahead of our own interest, And in order to get us to see what that looks like, Paul gives us the greatest example of humility that he could possibly offer up. In fact, he says in verse four, 4 that we are not to look out for our own personal interests, but for the interests of others. And here's the example, verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And the word translated attitude means mindset. It refers to the way of thinking or the way of the mind Have this attitude or this mind in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus. What is the mind that Christ Jesus gave? What is the ultimate act of humility and humiliation and condescension? What is the ultimate example of somebody considering the interests of others ahead of their own? It is in the person of Christ. So he says in verse 6, who, although he existed in the form of God, he's referring here to Christ, he existed in the form of God, this is his pre-existence before Bethlehem before Joseph and Mary before being conceived in the in the womb of the Virgin Mary he existed in the form of God and the word form there is a word that describes an outward manifestation that reflects an inward reality in other words he existed outwardly displaying the fact that he is God one with the father and he existed in that form outwardly because inwardly that is what he possessed was the very divine nature itself He existed in the form of God, outwardly manifesting deity, because inwardly that was his reality, that was his nature. So this is the preexistence of Christ. This is what John talks about in John chapter 1, that in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. That Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That's the miracle of Christmas. That's That's the glory of what we celebrate at this time of the year. That the infinite and eternal God, the one who existed in the form of God, outwardly manifesting as deity, Because he was by nature deity, one with the Father, different in person, but one in essence. He existed in the form of God. And then look at the step of humility, verse seven or verse six. He did not regard his equality with God a thing to be grasped. So notice that Paul says he had equality with the Father, he existed in the form of God, and he had an equality with the Father. An equality of stature, an equality of power, an equality of reputation. He was equal with God in every way, but he did not regard his equality with God as something to be grasped. And the word means to be seized or to held on to like a prize. In other words, he, he, his equality, his position of status with God was not something that he grasped or clung to. Instead, it was something that he he willingly emptied himself of all the prerogatives of his deity to condescend and come down to us. So Paul says in verse 7, He emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Now this emptying of himself, and notice this, this is a, a self-emptying. It's not that somebody else imposed this emptying on him. It is that he emptied himself. And what does it mean that he emptied himself? It doesn't mean that he emptied himself of his deity. He didn't become less than God. It doesn't mean that he emptied himself of his divine attributes. It means that he emptied himself or he laid aside the glories of his equality with the Father. That he who existed in heaven and enjoyed the comforts of heaven, the conveniences of heaven, the worship of angels, the glories of heaven, the holiness of heaven, he who existed in that form and enjoyed all of those things, laid aside all of that. He divested himself of all of those prerogatives and all of that position, all of that comfort and convenience so that he could take upon himself the form of a servant. And so he says in verse 7, He took the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of men, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So in verse 7, when it says he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, it's the same word that is used to describe him being in the form of God. In other words, he who existed as God, equal with the Father, was by nature very God. He came here and he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. So he outwardly manifested as a servant, and he lived as a servant, and he died as a servant because he was by nature, in his very nature, a servant. So this is a self-humiliation this is a self-condescension nobody forced him to do this this is what the son did on his own on his own prerogative leaving aside the glories of heaven and abandoning that walking away from that he came and took upon himself humanity he came in the likeness of men and was made in the likeness of men. And being found, verse 8 says, in appearance as a man. And by that, Paul is saying it, that outwardly, if you looked at him, you would see the appearance of a man. Jesus was not walking through the streets of Jerusalem with a halo above his head, with any kind of a supernatural glow. If he had been working that day, he would have been sweaty and stinky and smelly and dirty, and his face was dirty, and he had calluses on his hands. If you just saw him in the marketplace and bumped into him, you wouldn't say to yourself after you bumped into him, turned and saw him, you would say, oh, that must be the Son of God. Being found in appearance as a man. This describes his complete humanity. And he was genuine humanity, just as he was genuine deity. He left and laid aside the prerogatives of that to take upon himself genuine humanity, and then being found in appearance as a man. You saw him in the marketplace or saw him in a crowd, he was a man. He wasn't only a man, but to the eye, he was no more than a man, to the eye. In reality, he was, but in appearance, he was humanity. And there was nothing special about his outward appearance. This is how far down he stooped. So verse 8 says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. This was his own choice, this was his own decision, to step down, having stepped down out of heaven to live among us. He stepped down again and humbled himself by becoming obedient to the Father's will, obedient to the point of death. And then Paul says, as if it couldn't get any lower, even death on a cross, which which was the most despicable, the most cursed, the most wretched, and the most humiliating death of all. To hang on a cross and to suffer the curse for sin, that was the lowest that you could possibly go. It wasn't just that he suffered death. He suffered death, even the death of a cross. There's no lower death that he could suffer. There's no worse death he could suffer and to be publicly displayed and humiliated before men, to be laughed at and jeered and to be abandoned by his friends, and then to suffer the wrath of God by hanging on that cross in the heat of that day, crucified as if he were a common criminal, a common thief, by a pagan Roman Gentile government. The worst death imaginable. That's the humiliation. Now notice from from verse 4, verse 5 I should say, all the way through to the end of verse 8. We have gone from the heights of heaven to the depths of death on a cross. Now, it should not come to as any surprise to those of us who know our Bibles that this death on the cross was something that he planned and he purposed. He knew this was what he came to do. Mark chapter 10, verse 45 says, The Son of Man did not come to, see, to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's a great summary of what it is that we're looking at. The Son of Man came not to be served. He deserved to be served as he had stepped out of heaven, but he came not for that purpose, to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. It was his intention to do that. Jesus said he came to lay his life for his sheep. So nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up again. This I have received from the Father. And for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life for my sheep. This was his intention to do this. He came for this purpose. When the Son was in heaven, and it was in the counsels and the plan of God for the Son to step into humanity and take upon himself a human nature to limit the expressions of his divine attributes, never emptying himself of his deity, always remaining fully God, but uniting his deity with humanity, and then to suffer such a despicable, horrible death on the cross, that was in the mind of God when he was in heaven. And he left all of that knowing that at the end he would suffer the indignity of the cross for sinners. That was the goal. He laid it down, laid down his life on his own accord. Uh, Matthew chapter 1, the angel told Mary, You'll name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is what he came to do. So Jesus was not a victim of crucifixion. He wasn't a great man who had a great plan that just went south and things didn't work out the way it should have been. He willingly, voluntarily laid down his life for sinners. Now, this is the ultimate act of humility, is it not? Remember, Paul has said that he wants us to not consider our own interests ahead of others, but other people's interests ahead of our own. And what is the greatest example of somebody considering the interests of others ahead of their own? It's the Lord Jesus leaving heaven and coming down here to suffer the indignity of the cross for sinners. That is, that he considered our interests ahead of his own, and he left heaven and came here and suffered that death so that he might redeem us from our sin. That's the ultimate example of humility, for he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, Christmas is the greatest miracle ever. It's greater than the parting of the Red Sea. It's greater than the resurrection. It is greater than the new birth. It is the greatest miracle ever because it is the infinite and eternal and omnipotent and limitless God, uniting himself with a limited humanity. The infinite God walked among us in human flesh. He was both God and man. That is the greatest miracle in all of Scripture. All that is God smushed into a human body so that he could display what the nature of the Father was for us and walk among us. That is the ultimate act of humility. And Christmas is not just the greatest miracle, it is the greatest act of love ever. That the Son would do this on behalf of sinners that he would come to this earth and live among sinners, leave the, the purity of heaven and come to the impurity of this earth, leave the glories of heaven to come to the, the sinfulness of sin hole that we call earth, to leave all the, that behind and to empty himself of all of the prerogatives and the comforts and conveniences of his deity, to come down here and to live among us, and then to die on a cross for sinners. is the greatest act of love ever. See, that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Man, it's not the presents, the trees, the lights, or the traditions, or any of those things. It is the infinite God taking upon himself human flesh and walking among us and then humbling himself even further and willingly, intentionally, and purposefully going to the cross to suffer that death on behalf of all who will trust in him. That's the greatest miracle. It's the greatest salvation. And why did he do that? To save his people from their sins. Because we're sinners. That's why he did it. And without that rescue plan, without that act of redemption, Without that atonement being made and that sacrifice for sins, we would be hopeless and we would be helpless. We'd be in a hopeless and helpless estate because we can't save ourselves because we're wretches. We've lied, we've stolen, we've blasphemed God's name, we've coveted, we've dishonored our parents, we've committed adultery in our heart, committed murder in our heart. We are guilty before a holy God. Our rap sheet is enormous. We deserve wrath, we deserve justice. But God instead has given us mercy in the person of his son. The son came down here considering our interests ahead of his own and humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. So in those verses from verse 3 through 5, we go from the heights of heaven to the depths of suffering on a cross. And then he rose from the dead, and he is exalted now to the Father's right hand. We saw in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4 this morning that he sits, having made purification for sins, he sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. And that is what verse 9 through 11 described. For this reason, also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow those in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why did he do what he did? To save sinners. So that everyone will bow before him. Now, not everyone will bow before him as Savior. Some will bow before him as judge. We talked about that this morning. Some will bow before him because he is the judge. But all men will bow before him because he has been given, having humbled himself to the point of death on a cross, going as high as he could to as low as he could. He has now gone as high as he can again. For the Father has exalted him to his right hand and given him the name which is above every name. And now God, in response to what he has done on the cross, in the Son, he commends all of us this day to repent. See, we have to recognize that we are sinners and that we deserve God's wrath. And then he will forgive us when we turn from our sin and believe upon the Son who died that death to save sinners. And when you do that, when you repent of your sin and believe upon Christ, God promises you to give you eternal life, cleanse your conscience, and renew you and give you a new heart and a new nature and take you to heaven to be with him because your sins are forgiven because Christ paid that price. That is the ultimate example of humility. So let us this time of year, on this day, remember that Christmas is about one who considered our interests ahead of his own and left the glories of heaven to come here and suffer a horrible, indignant death on our behalf. That is what Christmas is about. That's the theology behind Christmas. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we are so thankful to you that you sent your Son to be the sacrifice and the Savior for sinners. Unto us is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, Christ the King. We thank you that he came to this earth, and in an act of great humiliation, great humility, he humbled himself, and suffered the death on the cross that we deserve. We thank you that his perfect life can be credited to our account, and his perfect death can be reckoned to our account, all because of what he has done, and it is by faith. We pray that all of us may be mindful this day of that we are sinners, that we deserve your wrath, but instead we have received mercy in Christ. Keep us mindful of that. May we never forget it. May we never lose the realization that we need this each and every day and each and every hour, Christ, who is our Lord. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.